you pray with me? And then uh, I'm going to sing a quick chorus that I, th I think a lot of you will know. I'll just continue praying with Sam. Lord, we just come before you continually as we have been worshiping you through song. We've been worshiping you through uh, even the announcements. I'm just giving you praise for what you're doing in our midst. Uh, and for Israel, God, we just continue to place ourselves uh, before you just to, just to admit and acknowledge your holiness and your goodness and your kindness to us. And we pray that your word right now would uh, speak loud and clear, Lord, that you would um, prepare each heart to receive and to bear fruit. I pray that you would get glory out of this time. In Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for. To be overcome by your presence, Lord, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for. To be overcome by your presence, Lord. Jesus didn't come just to save you from condemnation. He did that. He saved us from hell, from the consequences of the penalty of our sin. But he didn't just save us for that. He, he saved us so that we... And he took and he drank our death so that we can drink of his life. He drank of our death and rose again so that we can drink of his life. Jesus said in John 4, everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of H2O, everybody who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He also said this in John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Two things drive us, and many other things drive us, but two primary things I think drive us, pleasure and stability. Now we're wired for pleasure, we're wired for stability. We, we are wired this way by the God who made us. We're wired for pleasure because we are made for joy. And so pleasure drives us because we're made for joy. Stability and security drives us. The desire for, for security drives us because we're designed, designed and wired for peace. And these things were supposed to drive us to God. They were supposed, they're put there and wired in us to drive us back to him. God's beauty and God's majesty and God's splendor and his symmetry, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were, uh, and, and our need for pleasure were meant to connect. And the, and the security, the desire for security was supposed to drive us to the God of peace, the one who is whole, the one who was full of wisdom, the one who was right and full of righteousness and justice. We were supposed to find our security in him. When, when the fear of the Lord, when you're in awe of God, when you're before his presence and you really see him for who he is, it has this effect on you to settle your soul, doesn't it? So the fear of the Lord becomes this, this way of ordering us and settling us. And this desire for pleasure, this desire for security, it was all supposed to be like a thirst in us that was made to be quenched in the Lord himself. So, but the problem is, is that we, we don't 
we, we go about this life with these thirsts and these, these hungers, and we don't, if we don't know why they're there, we don't realize that, it, that they're supposed to be quenched in God. We, we see the, the enemy of our pleasure, pain. And we see the enemy of our security, instability. And, and, we, and we fend them off or avoid them at all costs. When we see instability coming or uncertainty or vulnerability, we, we fight it or fend it off unless we have some sort of a hope that if, we, that if we push through it, there's something on the other side. There's pleasure on the other side. There is security on the other side. Otherwise, we have no ability to endure through pain or stability. It's just not possible. Without hope, we're grasping for pleasure and striving for joy. And without hope, we're grasping for uh, control to, so that we can secure our own safety. And we're wired this way. And we know it. The world knows it. We, we know, and scientists even know that we need these, these chemicals flowing through our brains, right? We need this dopamine and oxytocin and serotonin. We, we, we need these endorphins running through our brains. We, we all know that it's there. We know that we need adequate levels of serotonin to feel calm and, and safe. But we, in this world, or we know that in, in a world that is, that is falling apart and is desperate for pleasure and security, we need more than just the uh, observation that we need these things. We need an explanation. Why? Why are these things there? And if you look at Psalm 16, if you want to turn there with me real quick, Psalm 16, I want you to know and notice these two primary things that the psalmist draws out. Pleasure and security. Psalm 16, starting in verse 8, says this, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. Notice that, that first part. Not be shaken, that's security. Okay, verse 9, therefore, my heart is glad. That's pleasure. And my whole being rejoices my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. That's security. You've made known to me, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, pleasure. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So this psalmist he knows that without, apart from the Lord, he will be shaken. That apart from the Lord, they're, they're, that if there are pleasures, they're only fleeting. They are not forevermore apart from the Lord. He knows this, and he also helps us see the why. Why are we, and the explanation, why are we wired this way? So we're wired this way. We're wired for desiring. The wiring is for desiring God. That's why it's there. But what if, again, we don't know why it's there? Or, or if we, we know it's there and we just, we, we take our thirst and we take our hunger elsewhere, the Bible actually talks about this as idolatry. And the children of Israel, God revealed to them over and over that he was the source of, of all that they needed. And he revealed to them that he's the fountain of living waters. Look, look with me real quick in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12 through 14. And I'll read it to you. You don't have to go there. It says this, Jeremiah 2, starting in verse 12. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
So first he says, I am the fountain of living waters. And then he's like, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me and they have hewn out or dug their own well. Uh, and, and these wells are empty and dry and broken. So God revealed this to his people over and over. He commanded them. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. This is why they were in exile, you guys. This is why the book of Daniel exists. Because they continually hewed out for themselves wells that were broken and cisterns that were empty. And God was continually reminding his people that, that, sat, that satisfaction in him was the reason why that, that, that drive for pleasure and security existed. And he was continually driving his people back to him. And uh, one commentator said that idolatry is essentially a perversion of a proper appetite to see God. This, this appetite to see God exists in every human being. It's embedded into us. And God was revealing to his people over and over that that appetite was supposed to be satisfied in him. And what idolatry does, it's, it, takes, it takes that God-given appetite and it tries to mine and extract from things that were only meant to be satisfied in him, mine and extract things from, th from created things. That's what idolatry basically is. John Piper said that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us. He gets the most glory out of us when we are most satisfied in him. What idolatry does, so instead of giving glory to God, being, God being glorified in us, idolatry steals and lies, steals from God and lies about God. It steals from God because it glorifies the gift rather than the giver of the gift. And it claims that the thing, that the gift is better and then it lies about God because it, it says that God's not enough. And it claims that the thing is the ultimate thing, the source of pleasure and security, which is a created thing that God made to drive us back to him. And when God knows more than anyone else, that when that lie is believed, it's like drinking poison and leads to death. So how that connects with our passage today, as you're probably wondering, in Daniel chapter 3, let's kind of uh, recap where we're at. So Daniel chapter 3, we come to a place where, uh, just to back up a little bit, so God gave Nebuchadnezzar, basically for Nebuchadnezzar, it was a nightmare. He gave him a dream, and the dream was um, that that all these kingdoms were portrayed in, with an image. And then this giant rock comes and strikes the feet of this image, and the entire thing just like blows into shreds and, and blows away with the wind. And he reveals to Nebuchadnezzar that, that, that the one part of the, of the image, the head of gold, through Daniel, reveals to, to Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel, that head of gold is you, Nebuchadnezzar. So he was very impressed by this, this er interpretation of this dream. He was so unsettled by it. He was, he was so disturbed by this dream that he made the interpretation of it like one, like number one priority for his entire kingdom. I have to know what this means. Needless to say, that drive for security for him was strong. He needed to know what's, what's happening with my kingdom. So, God had appointed Daniel to be a prophet and to interpret his dream. 
and Nebuchadnezzar was impressed. He was so impressed, in fact, that it says in the, in, in the verses previously in the end of chapter 2 that, that he basically praised God. And then he appointed Daniel and his friends to high positions of authority. He says this about God in, uh, in verse 47. Truly your God, this is chapter 2, verse 47, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So he was impressed. He was impressed by God. He was impressed by Daniel. So that sounds like a changed man to me. Maybe. Let's see. Let's start reading in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth was six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. I mean, it's just a statue, right? I mean, it's, it's, only, it's only 90 feet tall and nine feet wide, but it's just no harm in building a statue, right? Like, what's the problem? I mean, we built a statue, pretty, pretty close. It's called Statue of Liberty. It's about 111 feet from the feet to the head. So no problem in building a statue, right? Like, no harm yet. Well, Nebuchadnezzar made it fully gold. We'll talk a little bit more about that a little later. He also, um, look in verse four, I'm sorry, verse two, look at verse two. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, and the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So this isn't just a statue, so he's making a big deal about it. He's having uh, the most important people come to dedicate this statue, but again, what's the big deal about a statue, an image? I mean, we had a dedication of the, the Statue of Liberty. We did the same thing. We had a parade. We had most important people there. We made a big deal about it. So still, no harm done, right? So let's look at verse 4. Actually, verse 3, sorry, I'm getting my verses mixed up. So verse 3, then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices and the magistrates, all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So basically, that's just saying that they, they obeyed. He's like, they just jumped. When, when he said go, they, they went. All right, look at verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay. All right, all right. So this is a little bit bigger deal for him than just a statue. This is religious. This is a worship service. So what's going on? So back to the dream. God had clearly revealed to Nebuchadnezzar that there was one king, one. There was one kingdom that would stand forever. That was clear to Nebuchadnezzar. And it was also clear that he was not it. He was not that king, and it was not that, his, his kingdom was not that kingdom that was going to stand. So what is he doing? Well, he, he's realizing that his kingdom is in trouble. He's realizing 
my kingdom's going down. My kingdom's not as secure as I thought. So he's shoring up his kingdom. And he's basically what he's doing, if you look at and you remember the interpretation of the dream, that uh, he was the head of gold. And the fact that he made this entire thing gold, what does that tell you? He's making a statement. He's saying, I am that king. I am that kingdom. I don't care what Daniel or Daniel's God has to say. I'm the man. So yes, he is making a statement. And definitely not a coincidence that the, the location of this, Dura, is the same location as the Tower of Babel. No coincidence there, I don't think. But he's saying, my kingdom is supreme. And he's taking his desire for security and stability and he is out of fear. He's kind of scrambling. And he is determined to make his kingdom supreme. So, and it seems to be working. Look at verse 7. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, bagpipe, and every kind of music... By the way, all these instruments, these are, these are basically instruments taken from the nations. So uh, you look a little deeper into this, uh, the reason why there are all these different kinds of instruments is because he's basically taking all of the different people groups that he's ruling and he's basically saying like, bring, bring them all in and let's show that I'm ruling all over all them and let's, let's bring some unity here. So, uh, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So, all right. So he's taking this fear that he has and he's scrambling. He's saying, I am that king. And he's saying, everybody needs to worship this statue because he has a, a threat to his security and stability. And he takes, uh, he creates a false peace, false unity with a false God is basically what he's doing. And it, you know, he's probably feeling pretty good right now. I mean, think about it. He's on top of the world. He's got full control. He's got unity. His, his entire kingdom, all his, his empire that's ruling over the nations, he's got basically world peace is what he has right now. He's accomplished world peace. So he's probably got some serotonin running through his brain. He's probably feeling real good feelings right now. He's like, this is great. But how secure is his peace gonna be if he's clinging to what, like the dream showed him, what will inevitably break into pieces and become like chaff carried away by the wind until no trace is found. That's what his dream showed him. That his kingdom would become nothing. So what about all the people that bow down? What are they doing? Like, how did he get so many people to, to come and, and, and bow down to this giant statue well it's easy first thing you need is a low view of God that's all you need to start with and then you let your drive and your desire for pleasure and security to drive you that's all it takes low view of God then just let your wiring drive your decision because think about it they had the pleasure of a beautiful sight of this giant golden image. I mean, it was probably beautiful and impressive. They had the, the pleasure of that. They had the security of an empire so powerful and unified that nobody could touch him. Nobody. They had the pleasure of an orchestra playing all different kinds of music. I mean, imagine how good that probably sounded. They were like, this is great. 
And then the no-brainer, obviously, of the preservation of their security under the threat of burning in a fiery furnace. It just makes perfect sense. Why would you not do this? It actually is strange to think of anybody who wouldn't bow down to this because it just made perfect sense if you have a low view of God. But again, and even though they felt secure, they felt great about their unity of their empire, how secure is their joy and peace going to be if it's based on a kingdom that will inevitably break into pieces and blow away like chaff in the wind, never to be seen. So I think we can start to think about, all right, what what about us? Do you realize that you're driven also by pleasure and security? Do you you see this propensity in you to, to take that drive and to, uh, or take that wiring and let that drive you. Do, you. do you also kind of like relate maybe with Nebuchadnezzar and, and these people that are bowing down and you think about your need for pleasure and security and when you see it threatened, you, you see your propensity to just go with the flow and satisfy those desires I guarantee you the original readers of Daniel felt that. They, they knew their propensity. Because think about their history. They just came through uh, j- the judgment of God and now they are in exile. I'm sure they were tired of continually taking the wiring that they had for desire or for, for pleasure and security and turning it to broken cisterns and to false gods and experiencing the judgment of God because of it. And now the, the fact that they're, they're present in this moment of this pagan worship of this empire, the fact that they're present in this moment right now is because they were, they were reaping what they were sowing because of their idolatry. So they're probably tired. They're probably tired of taking those, those, those wirings in the wrong direction. And I don't know about you guys, but I can relate. When I forget why these, what this wiring is here for, and I, and I misdirect it, and I start trying to extract and mine things out of created things, and I realize that didn't do it, and it created more problems. Maybe you're here, and you feel that like me. Maybe you can relate with these guys. I think that's why this book was so encouraging for these original readers. They're reading this and going, all right, uh, we're done experiencing God's judgment and and the consequences for our our idolatry, and we're tired of it. And I think that the the fact that that this story is added in the book of Daniel is going to be an encouragement for them, and I think it's an encouragement for us. So here's what I want to do. I want to take that propensity to wander. Uh, You think of that song, um, prone to wander. Um, What does it say? Yeah, you guys sing it or say say the lyrics, but... But um, the, the response is to that, in, in that song, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. So I want to take the, the rest of our time together in the word to go like, okay, I, I get that, I, that propensity. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it leading and creating destruction in my life. And, and, and I'm gonna, I want to make this entire, the rest of this time, a prayer. Lord, here's my heart. Take and seal it. I, have, I see this proneness to wander in me. But the problem is, is we have a hard time. Like we know that we wander. We, we probably know deep down we've probably got idols. But identifying them is really hard. But because there's, it's like idols 
are not, like, there isn't a giant 90-foot statue that we're worried about bowing down to. An idol is anything, any created thing that we've put in the place of God. So, so I want to help a little bit. I think the word of God today, this passage is going to help us kind of identify some of the symptoms of maybe that there, there, there's an idol in there somewhere and that we're, we're taking that wiring up for, for pleasure and security and we're misdirecting it. And, and I think we can see some symptoms of when that happens. Um, do you guys ever make a, a blanket fort when you were a kid? So my, I never did, but my kids, it seems like each one of my kids loved to, to make little forts out of blankets. And did you ever, like, <laughs> did you get, like, super protective over that thing? I mean, anybody comes near it, and you're just like, don't breathe on it. This is my fortress. And you're inside, and, and you're just like, all the world is right when you're in there, because, like, nobody, it just feels like nobody can touch me in here, and I'm safe. And, and then what happens? The cat runs through it, or the dog runs through it, or something, and it's torn down, and you're just, you're completely shattered. You're like, no, this was, uh, this was my security. You know, that's what we do with idols. Because we instinctively know that these idols can't save us. They can't truly please us forevermore. They, they can't truly bring security. They, they can't because they don't exist. So what do we do? We instinctively try to protect and save the gods who can't save us. So I think that there are some symptoms in here in the word today that show that these guys are actually really insecure about their kingdom. They're insecure about their kingdom because it's, because it's, it's a false god. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a blanket fort, so to speak. So let's uh, jump in in verse 8. I see three symptoms, if you're taking notes, three symptoms that we're defending an idol. Symptom number one, we get malicious. We get malicious. Verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared that, they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Actually, let's, let's just stop at verse 8. So they came and, and uh, malici- maliciously accused the Jews. These are the same Chaldeans that were spared because Daniel interpreted the dream. Remember, they were all going to die. They were, they were, Nebuchadnezzar was like, fine, you guys can't interpret this, then everybody dies. And then all of a sudden, Daniel steps in. He's like, what's, what's the deal? What's the problem? And then he goes and prays, and God reveals to him what the dream was. These are the same guys, so, so why are they being all nasty and, and slandering? Well, because they see a threat to their security. They, they know, based on the dream, that their kingdom, their God, their, their idol, is a blanket fort. They know that deep down. So what happens is, is that when you're insecure, you begin to tear down and accuse. It's what Satan does. Satan knows that his kingdom is going down. So what does he do? He's called the accuser of the brethren. That is his title. He knows he's going down, so, so he, he thinks, well, well, if my kingdom's not going to last, then all I can do is just tear down the, the other kingdom, and he knows that the best way to do that is to destroy the reputation of the saints. Because he's insecure. So we can know that when we're being malicious, we're falling into slander or gossip and just speaking of people in such a way that, that we're tearing down their reputation or trying to hurt them by what we say about them, you can ask, what am I insecure about? What, am I in, what idol am I trying to defend here? Because it's a symptom 
but um, speaking evil of other people is a symptom, but actually speaking too highly of people is also a symptom. So the second symptom that I see here is that we inflate created things. Look at verse nine. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the, of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the burning, fiery furnace. Uh, let's keep going. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Notice how they're talking about their kingdom and their king. So what happens is, it's so interesting, because they're throwing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego under the bus. And by the way, we don't know where Daniel is. This is kind of like a, a funny thing. Like you get, you get to reading this, and you go through the whole story, and you're like, where's Daniel? We actually don't know. Uh, some of the commentators have uh, conjecture, but, but we, we, we really don't know where he's at. Um, but... It was pretty well known that, that these guys didn't serve Nebuchadnezzar's gods. So he, he's prob they're probably not bringing new information. So, so they're clearly coming for, for another reason. But you, when you hear their language and you hear them talk, they, they say things like, O oh, king, live forever. O oh, king. And as they talk about, so there's, there's really a few things that you notice. They inflate their people. They inflate the importance of their standards. They inflate the importance of their work. And they inflate the importance of their power. So they inflate the importance of their peeper, people. They're like, they're like, oh, king, you're just, you, you, you should live forever. And then with their standards, they're like, you've made a decree. And then as they repeat it over and over, is it, I don't know about you guys, but you ever read it and it's like, why is this repeated? You know, the, you made a decree that every man hears the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre. I think they said that like three times. It's like, sheesh. I think they're inflating their standards. And then they're also inflating the importance of their work. When they talk about the skilled music and they're serving these, these gods that, that, you've, that, you've, that you've put before them to serve. They're not serving them. And then they inflate the importance of their power as they talk about what they can do to someone by throwing, in their, throwing, throwing them in the fiery furnace. I think we could do that too. I think we can inflate the importance of our people when we talk about here's, here, here's our people, here, here's, here's what they do, and, and, uh, and we can kind of like overinflate the importance of our thing. And we can inflate our own standards you know, the life that you got set up and the standards that you've set and the schedule that you've set and we, we can make those things too important. And the work that we do, the work of our hands, the things that we create, we can, we can overinflate those things too. I can relate to that as an artist. Sometimes you create something and you're just like, wow, look at what I made. Like everybody, come, come and look. And it's supposed to what? It's supposed to draw you to the creator. But what we do is we, we overinflate the importance of what we've made. And then the power, I think, I think we can overinflate our effectiveness. Like, man, we could talk about our church that way, and I, pr I pray that we don't. I pray that this is not what we do here. That we, talk, we don't talk about like, oh, this is the only place that God moves when I first got saved in the church that I went to, that's how they talked. They talked as if God was only present in that church. And they talked about other churches as if they were just lame and they sang hymns and stuff. I pray that that's not us. Let's not over inflate 
our work and our people and our standards. Now, if they're God's standards and we're drawing glory back to him, that's good. But listen to yourself over-inflate or over-exaggerate things. Also, there's flattery. I want to just draw out the, fla- the fact that there's, there's flattery happening here. I want to draw the distinction between flattery and real, true, encouraging words. So uh, Proverbs 26, 28 says that flattery, a flattering mouth ru- uh, works ruin. Proverbs 29, 5 says, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his steps. So how, how does it, how is it destructive? How, how is it spreading a net? Well, it, it fattens the person with pride. That's why. Encouraging words, they're great when it preserves the glory of God and points us back to the source. We should be doing that. But flattery is an unhealthy obsession of the glory of man and turns us away from the source. Do you hear when, when the Chaldeans are like, oh, king, live forever. Can you just Im- imagine the, the pride in Nebuchadnezzar just like puffing up and like contributing to the fact that he's not going to the, to the fountain of living waters? This is contributing to the problem by speaking these kinds of words to him and keeping him in, in deception that he, uh, he can continue to turn away from the source and we'll see as we continue to read that uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, is not going to the well. So sim- third symptom that I see in verse 13 is that we rage. Look at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Abednego be brought so they brought these men before the king. Remember we talked about that blanket fort? He's, he's ticked. He's in furious rage when he hears about these guys that aren't giving tribute and worshiping his idol. We see the symptoms of him going to a broken cistern. Remember when Jesus said, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. We know as believers that when we're drawing from the well, uh, the, the, uh, uh, from the Lord, that we're, we're actually satisfied and we're calmed and our spirit is quieted and we're meek. But when we're like a man who travels for miles to, in, his, in his thirst, only to show up to a well that's empty. When we're drawing from, from an empty and, and broken well, it actually, it enrages and, and, and um, inflames our passions even more. So we see Nebuchadnezzar just, his, his flesh is just like inflamed. So I wanna make a turn here. I don't want to just focus on the symptoms of trying to find where there may be idolatry. I want to make a turn here and look at the next part of our story, which actually shows uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are his, their uh, Hebrew names. Um, how they're a model for the original le- readers and for us to stand firm in faithfulness to Yahweh in the midst of a really hostile environment. Um, in an idolatrous environment. So we don't just look for the symptoms of sickness, right? We, we strengthen our immune system. So you, you go upstream and be strengthened for the moment that's coming. So I see four ways, if you're taking note, four ways that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah can help us bind our wandering hearts to God. So that's, that's what I want. I see my propensity to wander, and I want my heart to be bound, bind my wandering heart to, to thee. And I see these guys as being a great example of how to do that. So first way that uh, we can bind our wandering hearts to God 
is to drink before you're thirsty. If you're taking note, drink before you're thirsty. So look at verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadmach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Um, notice here that he doesn't just say you didn't worship my idol, my, my, my statue. He says, is it true that you don't serve my gods? So this is, this is previous. So they haven't been serving his gods all along. So these guys, they, they're not just waiting for the moment when temptation comes. Before that time comes, they're drawing from the well. They're, they're drinking before they get thirsty. So this is a lifestyle. Twice it actually says that they don't serve Nebuchadnezzar's gods. It's a lifestyle. And it's, you know, it's the rule of, of that if you wait till you're thirsty, you're probably already dehydrated. It's almost the same principle as like don't shop when you're hungry. It's a lifestyle of devotion. And so if, if our hearts are um, are wandering in the little moments. We can't expect to be faithful in the crisis moments. If we're showing up to all of life's moments thirsty, we're going to be more likely to try to extract and mine from those things, from the, th from the things around us. We have to stay hydrated, so to speak. So don't show up to the buffet of idols of the world thirsty and hungry. Show up satisfied. Drink before you're thirsty. We have to, like, so what, what, what we do here when we gather on a Sunday morning, do the same thing as a lifestyle every day. Remind yourself, put, put before yourself the, the beauty of God, the glory of God, Read the word. Get it in you. Show up to life already satisfied in Christ. And remember what I said at the beginning, Jesus didn't just come to die to save you from condemnation. He drank your cup of death and rose again so that you could drink of his life and be satisfied. Now and forever. So drink before you're thirsty. So second, let your quenched thirst speak. Second way to bind your wandering heart to God is let your quenched thirst speak. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, I'm sorry, I need to not skip 15. Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, uh, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? <laughs> you, see, you can hear the pride in his, in his voice. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, notice they didn't say, O king, live forever. They just said, O Nebuchadnezzar. I thought that's interesting. They said, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We have no need to answer you in this matter. Nebuchadnezzar was trying to give them another chance. He's like, all right, guys, you, get, you guys were clearly not thinking straight, so let's try this again. Okay, everybody, let's start the music, music again. And guys, I'm going to give you another chance. I'm going to give you a chance to reason here. Let's, why don't you reason with me? And these guys are like, there's no point in that. There's no point in starting the music again. There's not even a point to have a conversation about this, Nebby. <laughs> we don't need to answer you right now. There's no conversation needed. They, the, the, um, the possibility of the allurement of the pleasure of the music and the threat of fire wasn't going to derail them even though Nebuchadnezzar hoped it would. 
So how were they able to do that? Uh, they were already satisfied in their God. They knew, and this is, this is kind of an interesting point, they, I think that they were sure that their satisfaction in God was going to do a better job communicating the worth of God than to try to reason with a guy who's set against God. I'm going to say it again. I think that they knew that their satisfaction in God was going to do a better job of communicating the worth of God rather than trying to reason with a man set against God. So we too can let our quenched thirst and our satisfaction in God speak. We don't always have to try so hard to fix the situation. We don't always have to try to talk our way through it and rely on our abilities to improve a hard situation. It's actually amazing what happens when we delight ourselves in the Lord and we let the chips fall. Delight yourself in the Lord and let the chips fall. They didn't feel the need. You know how easy it would have been for them to say like, Nebuchadnezzar, come on, come on, man. Come on, be easy on us. Can't you at least, you know, whatever. And they, they could have tried to reason their way through it. But they were like, we don't need to make a case right now. We don't even need to have a conversation. If you're ever dealing with a difficult situation or a difficult person, you don't have to change them. You can... Uh, let, and you don't have to think that it's your job to sanctify them. Um, you can let your satisfaction in God speak. Don't be tempted to quarrel and to fight your way through it. Go back to the fountain of living waters and let your satisfaction in him do some work for you. Number three, know the superiority of the true fountain so third way, bind your wandering heart to God. Look at verse 17. Know the superiority of the true fountain. If this be so, they answered, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Remember the people that, that, that bowed down to the image? Remember the only thing that they needed as a prerequisite? A low view of God? And when they were just driven by their thirst and their hunger? These guys, even in the face of losing all pleasure and, and in the face of pain and death, and they're losing their greatest, uh, losing their security by their loss of their lives, these guys were still able to proclaim the superiority of their God. Because it was their habit of letting their desire for pleasure and security drive them to the fountain they knew well from experience. Experientially, they knew. They knew well the satisfaction of the fountain. They knew the saving and the satisfying power of God. So we can follow their example and uh, let our need for security and, and pleasure drive us to our needs uh, uh, before the time comes. And experientially know our God and what he's able to do. We too have to rehearse the gospel. The gospel is the best way. Now remember that appetite to see God that's embedded into us. The gospel is the best way to see God. It's the best lens to see God. And the word of God, and you, when you read the stories, these guys knew the Bible stories. They knew who, what their God could do. They said, our God is able, because they knew him. And we too can know, can say that, I know my God, I know what he's able to do. I know the God who drank my cup of death so that I could drink of his life and be satisfied. Number four, see the four, fourth way that we can bind our wandering hearts to God. Look at verse 18. Is don't confuse a wishing well for the fountain. Don't confuse a wishing well for the fountain. Look at verse 18. But if not... 
Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These guys knew. They saw Nebuchadnezzar's gods. They, they, they had a familiarity of Nebuchadnezzar's gods, and they knew that Nebuchadnezzar only went to those gods because he thought that they would grant him something that he wished for. That's why people go to these gods, because they want something in particular. They ask for it, they wish for it, and they, and they treat their gods like wishing wells. But these guys knew that their god was better than life. I, I, love, I love these three words, but if not. But if not. They didn't need deliverance to worship Yahweh. They were convinced of the worthiness of their God regardless of the situation. Regardless of what they wished. They knew he was worthy. We need to get really good at saying, but if not. We need to get really good at saying, yeah, I know this situation is bad. I, this is not like, I'm experiencing pain, and I'm experiencing, uh, like, I don't feel safe, so God deliver me. But if not, you are good, you are worthy. Jesus doesn't exist to deliver us from every trial. He doesn't exist to make much of us. We exist to make much of him. We don't need to cling to security and safety, do we? Now it's nice. We're made for it. But it was made to drive us to the eternal king and our source of safety and security and joy. So we don't need to cling to comfort and safety because he's our fortress. And we don't need to cling to uh, inferior joys because he is our joy. I'm gonna end with Philippians 3, 8, and then we'll stop. And we'll, hmm, I was supposed to stop five minutes ago because I wanted to do some circles. You think we should still, no, call it? So guys, I encourage you, so we, we created some discussion questions, and what you could do is you can, you can take them home, you can take a picture of it, let's still put it up. So we have a slide for the discussion questions, what we were hoping to do circles today. And it's really hard to just like cut the time. And what you can do is you can take a picture of those discussion questions, take them with you wherever you go. So if you guys are having lunch together with somebody, you're fellowshipping, you have a uh, family gathering, um, these are things that you guys can take with you and to consider for the rest of the week. So I'm just gonna read Philippians 3, 8 and close. The Apostle Paul says this, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our superior joy. You are our hope. We worship you today as the source of our pleasure and security. We ask, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, show us those places that we've turned to broken cisterns. Lord, make us attentive to those symptoms where when we see um, idolatry in our heart poke its ugly head, that, Lord, you would remind us, you would use that as a reminder to turn back to you, the fountain of living waters, to be satisfied in you, to, um, to trust in you. I pray for 
for myself and for everyone here that, Lord, you would help us to um, take our view of you and our desire to see you. And God, help us to do whatever we can to just fill our screen with, with your majesty and your glory and your goodness so that we would be satisfied in you and that we wouldn't, um, that, that, that our desires uh, for, um, for other things and our propensity to wander from you would, would decrease and die and that we would be, we would be wholly devoted to you because you're worthy. I pray, God, that you'd give us a stronger ability to, to say, but if not, just to be so convinced that you're worthy of our worship regardless and to trust you and know that you're sovereign in every circumstance and that you're good and you can be trusted. So God, thank you for, uh, just for this time of being in your word. I pray for just your people that you would go with them, that you would continue to remind them of, of your love for them and pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.